this is the third in the series of webinars that are focusing on regenerative farming practices. And the idea here is really about growing botanicals for more than yield. It's really for the quality, connection, the care for the soil and the whole ecosystem. And I'll say a little bit more about today's webinar soon. For those of you who might've missed the one two weeks ago, it was a really great conversation with the challenges and importance of growing farms on corporate, growing botanicals on corporate owned farms. And a key point that I took away from that was a comment by the agronomist from Aboca, an Italian company, when he was saying, because they see the impacts, because they're vertically integrated, they control from seed to finished product. They see the impacts of their choices. And so that impacts helps them be more responsible because they're aware they get that feedback. And we'll see similar things in the conversation today. And after this three that's really been focused on farming practices, we're gonna shift and the next two are looking at livelihoods. One of the biggest threats to the long-term supply and sustainability of the botanical industry, I think is, is migration from rural to urban areas and who is gonna do the work. And, and that relates to the quality of that experience of doing that work. And so on April 22nd, we'll be talking about certifications as a path to sustainability. And that's really gonna be looking at what they offer and what the bigger challenges is and some thoughts on how to address those bigger challenges. And then on May 20th, there'll be a joint webinar that we're still kind of working out, but this is looking at, it will be done with the Fair Wild Foundation. And we're looking at, they'll be talking about really the responsibility of companies to really provide a better livelihood for the wild collecting community. All of these webinars are made available for free through the generous support of Sustainable Herb Program donors and underwriters. From finished product brands to ingredient suppliers, you know, a lot of the companies that we don't see on the grocery store shelf, but who have the direct connection with rural communities who are growing and producing the herbs. And so that's where responsible sourcing really has to take place. And so some of those companies are here, which is great. And it's also made possible through membership in at American Botanical Council. You can find out more information at the American Botanical Council website. So again, so today we're here to talk about farming botanicals on family owned farms and just this morning, I was listening to a, um, a course with the Presencing Institute out of Theory U and MIT Systems Change. And they had Aboriginals leaders from Australia, as well as Tobias Brandau from Soil and More, who does true cost accounting and looking at um, soil health and practices and does consulting for companies like PUCA around soil practices and that they were including that range of speakers because there was the point was that the heart of this change is really a cultural transformation that has to begin with our connection with the land. And so that's why I'm really excited for today's conversation because all of the speakers are have a connection with herbal medicine, herbalism, the theory and practice and philosophy of herbalism, as well as growing botanicals. And so that marriage of connection with the plants and the soil is the heart of the work that all of you all are doing. So I'm excited to have that and see how it weaves through the conversation. 
And I'm gonna briefly introduce you all, and I'm not gonna give long introductions. I could give long introductions for everyone, but I really wanna have time for you all to speak. So I'm gonna go down my list. And the first is Farmer C, I'll say it that way. Farmer C, Clarenda Stanley, is a fourth generation farmer. She's originally from the Black Belt region of Alabama. And as she says in her bio, she didn't set out to follow an agrarian path, but she found herself returning to her roots as the CEO of Green Heffa Farms. Founded in 2018, Green Heffa Farms is a socially conscious natural health brand governed by a commitment to ecological consciousness, equity, education, and economic empowerment. So welcome, C. It's great to have you. And then also have Jordan Pratt, who is the farm director of Kauai Organic Farms. And Jordan comes from a multi-generation farming family that's farmed in the Central Valley of California since the 1850s. Jordan's farmed a variety of crops, including almonds, pistachios, walnuts, corn, wheat, blueberries, beef cattle, and now he's growing ginger and turmeric in Hawaii. And it looks beautiful if you look on their website. That's as far as I've gotten, haven't gotten to Hawaii. And then Elise and Jeff Higley, who own and operate Oshala Farm, which is a mid-scale organic family farm where they grow over 70 varieties of medicinal herbs in, in production in Southwest Oregon. This, the Oshala combines Elise's passion for Western herbalism and Jeff's passion for farming. Over the last eight years, they've learned through blood, sweat, tears, and laughter what it takes to be a domestic herb grower and how to keep farming financially sustainable while staying true to their earth-centric values and organic practices. And then there's Jeff and Melanie Carpenter who founded Sackwood's Herb Farm in 1999. Jeff comes from generations of Vermont farmers and Melanie comes from an herbal family where she learned about herbs from her stepmother and plant visionary, Rosemary Gladstar. Together, Jeff and Melanie have woven their backgrounds and love of plants into their work as farmers, agricultural consultants, authors, and educators. So welcome all of you. And Jeff and Mel, why don't you all start and just give us a sense of Zach Wood's farm and your vision there. Hi everyone, I'm Melanie and this is Jeff uh, Carpenter. We're from Zach Wood's herb farm. And just wanted to do a shout out of thanks and gratitude to Anne and her teams at Sustainable Herb Projects and also American um, Council Botanical, Botanical Council. Um, we really appreciate being invited and being here with these amazing farmers and all the people that have joined. I'm gonna do a screen share and hop on. Just give me a sec. There. So we are um, Zach Woods Herb Farm and we're coming to you, as you can see with a hat, it's cold up here in snowy weather. Um, we're from the unceded Abenaki homeland in Northern Vermont. Um, sorry. Um, we grow about 10 acres of land here. We have um, been farming since 1999 and the land that we have is a small family farm. We are committed to organic practices. We have um, at the heart of our work, we are focused on making sure that we bring the highest quality herbs to the people and that we also farm and steward the land in a way that honors the ancestors here, our relatives, and also is economically viable and socially just. Those are the things that guide us. Um, we truly are a small family farm. It's 10 acres, like I was saying, that we own here, and we lease an additional 
10 acres from neighboring farms. And we are focused on doing things by hand with high quality and then automating and doing um, different types of um, economy of scale that makes sense to our farm um, while not at all jeopardizing quality. That's the thing that is really important to us. We feel that plants are not commodities. They are beautiful relatives and that we need to be in right relationship, not only with the land, but also with the plants. We feel that because we're growing medicine for people that the energetics are essential. So those are the pieces that we bring to our work. Here's some pictures of our fields, lots of plots of plants, no monocropping. Um, the, they like to grow together. And we are at a small scale, but we also, with the team that we have here, are able to produce around 10,000 pounds of dried plants a season. Um, we do things by hand, as we were saying, lots of um, good work. We employ some people who are wondering about our scale. We have three full-time employees um, during this growing season, um, besides Jeff and myself. And then we have one office manager who works year-round with order fulfillment. So like we said, with this small team and the love of the land and a lot of hard work, um, 10,000 pounds of organic you know, herbs that go out every year. Um, this is a picture of some of the small, smaller um, hand batches that we do. And we also do batch drying and different types of efficiency models that we found that work um, on the small family farm that scale up to allow us to be viable, but not at all compromise the quality of our plants. So we're really happy to be here. And that's a little quick snapshot of who we are, and we look forward to learning and growing with all of you. Great. Thank you, Jeff, Melanie. Jordan, we'd love to hear from you. Hi, uh, my name is Jordan Pratt, and I'm the farm director at Kauai Organic Farms. We're located on the north shore of the island of Kauai, and we farm a little bit over 50 acres. Um, we, uh, we employ about 17 um, local families um, and we're probably one of the larger ginger and turmeric producers in the state of Hawaii, which would also mean the nation. Um, we really focus on high quality. Uh, we, we predominantly are a wholesale producer. Um, and just this year we launched um, a resale, retail side of things we manufacture juice and puree in California also. And our customer base ranges from um, our, our products being used in food ingredients, juice um, and um, supplement type of things. And I will show you my screen here. Sorry about that, technical difficulties. While Jordan's sorting that out, if you wanna go ahead and introduce yourself in the chat, let us know where you're from and what your role with herbs is, that'd be great.
Anne, I don't know exactly what it is, so maybe we can move on to the next and I can share a little bit later on. Sure. Do you want to say anything else now about what you're doing? Um. <laughs> no. Okay, we'll go on. Yeah. No, it's all right. We, um, <clears throat> one of the interesting things that we've rolled out this past year is we're partnering with a couple customers that are really focused on um, sustainable and regenerative agriculture. And we're, we're piloting a five-year study to work on carbon sequestration um, on our farm. And it, we're implementing a mix of uh, multi-species cover crops, um, a compost bioreactor that'll be used um, to make a compost tea to inoculate the soil with bacteria and fungi. And we're really excited about um, being able to work, integrate that into our production model um, and to demonstrate to other farmers in the industry that we can build soil and take care of the environment while um, sustaining high yields. That's great. Jeff and Elise, do you wanna, so go ahead. Just unmute me. Okay. Hi, I'm Elise and this is Jeff from Oshala Farm. Uh, we are farming in Southern Oregon on native Dacuba uh, Dete land. And um, it's just an honor to be here with all of you today and have this conversation. And I really appreciate you bringing these conversations to the forefront. Um, we are on uh, sorting 140 something acres now in organic production. And um, we are also started the part of the real organic program. And we have a lot of diversity on the farm. We grow over 84 different crops. And um, just our, I guess our real, you know, part I'll let Jeff talk a little bit more is just having a relationship with the plants and the people we grow for is super important to us. And um, yeah, hopefully we'll learn more about each other today. And yeah, looking forward to questions too, but just wanted to say hello and let Jeff start off on that part. <laughs> okay. Um, so uh, like Elisa, we grow 84 different crops this season. Um, we keep kind of inching up that. Um, though we have 145 acres, we only grow on about 40 acres. Um, a lot of our space is wildland. Um, we leave a lot fallow. About a third of our crop uh, space is fallow every year um, and uh, long-term rotation. Um, a lot of our quality comes from the fact that we do start from the seed and we do a lot of breeding projects um, working towards developing um, crops that are higher in constituent value, but also that are more sustainable for the farm and yield and just how it works with um, our specific environment here in Southern Oregon. Um, you know, we, uh, like Melanie and Jeff, have several small blocks, even though we grow some acreage of certain crops, we uh, keep very small blocks um, broken up by a wide variety of number of plants. Here you can see yarrow, some lemon balm, um, I don't know what's there to the right, but definitely can see some other campaign flowering in the distance. And, after, after a haircut. Yeah. And I think um, one of the things that's really important for us is, of course, um, really quality of our plants, but um, also just having a, a wide number of rotations that we, we work with. We work with, uh, you know, a lot of the medicinal herbs we work with are in the Astraceae, the Lamaceae families, and how do we break up um, our plantings to, uh, to maintain soil health and the, uh, the health of the overall system. So breaking up into smaller blocks, looking at crop rotation, some 70% of our fields are in long-term perennials or um, you know, 
perennials that we treat either as biennials or something. So many of our crops are in the ground two, three, five plus years. Um, so we have much longer periods of rotation than we see in annual production, like vegetable farming and things like that. Um, our practices are very much pro-life, organic is that in general, but our, our entire system is about promoting all qualities of life, not only the plants, but our uh, insects, our pollinators, and we have a wide diversity of uh, animal, insect, and plant life that lives with us on the farm and in our environment, and how do we promote that? And we found that the greatest health of our farm actually is to increase the uh, diversity within our farm um, to respond to different things. And um, just working with the natural systems is really an important part of what we do. This is the honeybee in Tulsi. Yeah, this is Tulsi. Um, Drinking a cup. <laughs> yeah, and like I mentioned, a lot of what we do is leaving ground fallow and working with, uh, you know, natural cycles of cover cropping. So here's, uh, this is crimson clover actually with some chamomile coming up in it. But how do we work with uh, the natural systems to sequester uh, nitrogen from the air and then impart that into the roots of the plants so that we can bring less onto the farm? And, and how do we bring less things onto the farm? via trucking in the forms of fertilizer and fertility management and different things and utilize the natural systems to our advantage to uh, work in harmony with things that are already here on the farm that we can, we can work with. Um, I showed the seed earlier on we save almost 90% of our seed on the farm. Um, and a lot of that is a really important part of how we can maintain our sustainability and also uh, work towards breeding into or out of certain problems that we face. Um, a lot of the challenges in this type of farming is really the diversity is a challenge. Um, it's, it's a lot to keep track of. Um, we're a fairly small farm uh, in the grand scale of things. We do have uh, some 15 employees, um, but we are doing a lot by hand. Um, we, we have a lot of hand harvested crops. We have a lot of crops that um, require a lot of, you know, people in the field and the farm style here in Southern Oregon, we don't have giant fields um, in our region. So it doesn't lend itself to mechanization the same way that we see in the Midwest or even in the in California or, or the Willamette Valley here in, in Oregon, where we can put large equipment on the field. So it's a softer touch. And how do we work with those systems and the people that we have available to us to get the highest quality plant material to the, to the buyers and um, things like that. Hmm. I, I was gonna talk a little bit about our customers and what we do. Um, we, um, we grow uh, partly on contract with um, manufacturers and um, finished product brands, um, also distributors. And uh, then we sell also to directly to naturopaths and herbalists and, home herbalist as well. Uh, mostly what we sell is on our website. Um, well, half of what we sell is probably contracted and the other half is via our website. So um, we're really about um, creating, creating connection with our buyers, even people who we are contracting for larger amounts. We really like to send them photos of the seedlings we're planting or like when we're planting the seeds and keeping them updated on what's happening so that they have a connection with the plants as well. And it's not just, you know, a, a, a grand bunch of herbs coming into them that they've had a relationship from the beginning. They know when those plants were planted. And, you know, some of the challenges with that is that, you know, someone's calling for echinacea and they want 500 pounds of echinacea root. Well, we really needed to plant that three years ago. 
So, um, you know, how do we deal with some of that for planning and how do people as, you know, medicine makers and manufacturers, how do you know <laughs> that you're what you're going to need three years from now also? So that's, I think, a challenge. You know, we're not sitting on a bunch of thousands of pounds of herbs. Um, yeah, so that is definitely part of it. Um, you know, being that my background is in herbalism and that I make products as well, like I think our biggest thing is everything we have leading from the farm, we want to feel like it's as good as what we would feel putting in our own tea blends or our own products. So I think that's that's something that's really important to us. Um, and just, yeah, having relationships this is like a photo of some of the staff just playing around and having fun, but also like the hardest working people we know as our, our farm crew is amazing. Um, most people have been on the farm uh, for, you know, six years or so. So, um, and before that it was just Jeff and I. <laughs> so um, yeah, it's important, I think, who grows your herbs and how they are treated and the energy that goes into that goes into the medicine that people make. So we feel like that's a really important part of how, it, how things work. Um, this is our gran grandson, Leo. Um, you know, part of what we do obviously is, you know, we're producing plants for herbal medicine and that is super important. And the most important thing is that we leave this piece of land that we're stewarding um, for generations to come to farm. And that is, you know, it takes on, it's a lot of responsibility and um, yeah, we just enjoy working with other people who care about those things as well. So yeah, I think we talked long enough. So <laughs> we get up for questions. So thank you. Awesome. Great. Thanks. Lots to follow up on on all the seed. Love to hear something about Green Heifer Farm. Absolutely. Um, so I am Clarinda, Clarence, Brenda, my parents. They got together, got along for a little while. Here I am. Um, but I am known as C by family and friends. And when I became a farmer, pharmacy, I thought people would get like a little spin on it, being as I grow medicinal plants, but it, most people don't get it. I thought it was clever. <laughs> so I am the CEO of Green Huffa Farms. We are a little less than 15 acres uh, located on Eno land in Liberty, North Carolina and worked and nurtured for many unacknowledged generations by people of the African diaspora or diaspora, depending on how you pronounce it, whose history was interrupted. And I hailed from Alabama, have been in North Carolina since 2007. After a divorce, I gave him everything, including the state of Georgia, um, and had no, absolutely no intentions of becoming a farmer. And here I am today. We are a wellness brand. We have a line of delicious teas that are currently all sold out. We use every single thing that we grow. Uh, we are, you know, I'm hesitant to use the term bootstrapper because anytime you hear that term, you should think about who made the boots, <laughs> who owned the space that the cobbler was in, who owned the pasture that the cattle that then became leather um, fed. And when you really think about that word, it has a different meaning for those of us who have been historically oppressed and marginalized, particularly in agriculture, especially in the South. 
and definitely in the botanical natural health, natural wellness beauty space. There are not a lot of me's in this space, which is a bit contradictory to what we say we're doing. We're growing medicine for the goodness of the planet and to help others and to contribute to well-being. And so I must and ask the question, how are you doing that if everyone isn't in the room? And so for us, it is not only about growing high quality plants. We're a very small team. As a matter of fact, today is my son-in-law's first full-time day um, as we as a family have all maintained our employment in addition to working the farms, um, working the farm. And he is our first full-time employee, solely responsible um, for, not solely responsible, but reliant on Green Heifer Farms, which is a lot of responsibility for me. I have three children, uh, four grandchildren, and wait, I have a presentation. Can I share my screen? I shouldn't say presentation. I don't want you all to get real excited. I put together some pictures. Uh, let's see, present. Let me know if, can everyone see that? Can I get a nod? Awesome. All right, so uh, we're a little different in that I established a brand before I quite knew how to farm. <laughs> uh, it's, it's been successful, I can say. We just uh, concluded, not concluded, but we just announced a partnership with Gaia Herbs as their first ever equity partner. And part of that partnership will result in educational tools as well as our farm being a replicable model for those in this space that are interested in sourcing from BIPOC suppliers. Uh, we also have a partnership with B Corp um, working on our certification as well. This is me frustrated uh, about something I'm sure behind me is a sharecropper's cabin that I purchased and had relocated to a farm because how hard can it be to rehab 600? square feet, right? Well, it's hella hard, as a matter of fact, and moving a little cabin seven miles was not as easy as I had thought with my untrained eye, but it's there. Uh, these are some old picks. Things are further along now, but this is my tea blending cabin. This is my family. This is why I do what I do. It's often said in my bio that I'm fourth generation, but that's because three generations don't really get credit for the contributions that they made unwillingly to agriculture. Um, but if we are to be honest, I am a seventh generation farmer and eighth and ninth are in this picture. Uh, if you see that little bun in the oven, he has made it into the world. He just celebrated one month. Uh, so three grandsons, a granddaughter, and then along with my two adult daughters and my teenage son, I have two son-in-laws. So a lot of people. And I bring that with us to this little nugget of land. Um, that's my beloved, uh, well-loved John Deere in front, and that's a better view of the cabin. We actually only have two of our acres in production, field production, and then we also have, um, oops, I'm going ahead. We also have uh, a greenhouse and a high tunnel space. 
So again, very much new. Uh, we produced about 3,000 pounds of plant material and that's including hemp flower. We also grow three varieties of hemp um, as one of our medicinal plants and use the hemp flower in our teas. And then we sourced the additional plant material, which is great because it allows us to partner and support other farmers who share our, um, our ethos. And so we follow what we call the four E's solution because we can't fix all of the world's problems. And so we are ecologically conscious. We grow the best that we can grow with the resources that we have. And when resources uh, make themselves available, we always try to scale not only our production, but our commitment as well. We are about equity. There is such a small number of black women owned farms that the USDA census does not even count us. We don't even have a percentage. Uh, more so than that, for those who are interested in investments and getting um, private support, Black women get less than 1%. So as a very underrepresented group, representative of a group, I definitely speak out on equity in the space of agriculture and equity in the space of the botanical industry as well. Economic empowerment, how do you create a sustainable farming enterprise? So working with other small farmers on branding, how do you discover your niche? How do you create a loyal customer constituency? We're very proud to say that we have a very loyal donor base um, and we have a waiting list right now. And I get messages daily from people who are requesting pictures of seedlings because they want their teeth. And um, that's a beautiful uh, feeling to have. And then lastly, education. We want people to come to our farms, learn about the plants that we grow, understand um, all medicinal plants, even hemp, which you know is viewed as this, I don't know, it, it's the hype around hemp is um, interesting. But you know, how that fits into the overall uh, the overall view of medicinal plants and botanicals as a whole. So I will stop right there. So I don't hog up too much time. Oh, wait, I did wanna show you one of our teas. This one, Brenda's Balm, um, very simple. It's actually the first tea that I came out with because one of my rules is I don't put out anything if I don't know the plant. So everything we put out, we grow. So right now we grow 12 crops, uh, which is, very, very small, but I know each of those plants and I'm learning more and more about them. So our first was named after my mom uh, who became an ancestor in 2008. That's the only reason I was able to create artwork that had my dad behind her. Otherwise, everybody's tea would go rancid because Clarence and Brenda did not occupy the same space, but they do now in perpetuity on my bag of tea, Brenda's Bomb. So I'll stop there. Wow, great, thank you, and thank you all. So thinking, see how you said that about how can wellness, you know, the botanical industry contribute to well-being if everyone isn't in the room. And I think of that as a way of framing this next question around quality, because quality, it's it's not just about yield, you know, that's the kind of global commodity supply network. It's all about yield and it reduces to this single thing. But in fact, it's about well-being and and well-being 
broadly defined. And so I'd love to have you all talk a bit about how you think about quality, what that includes, and maybe starting with, there was a question about getting higher constituents in the plants, because ultimately, if you're going to succeed as a business, you have to have a botanical that is going to sell and achieve what you hope it's going to sell. But broader than that, you know, health of the soil, quality of the ecosystem, quality of the labor force, all of those things. Mel and Jeff, you guys want to start? You're muted. Hey. So yeah, one of the first things I learned as an herbalist, I was an I became an herbalist before I became a farmer, was that the the herbs that we use in our teas and our medicines and the plants that we use for nourishment and healing should, <clears throat> excuse me, look, smell, and taste as close as they did when they were growing in the field. And that's our goal is to really maintain that quality. And what we're seeing in the bigger picture on the mass market is that's not really um, I don't think that's really centered, the quality of the plants, and it's more about production and mass production and the bottom line on the bigger picture. So I think we're fortunate you know, as small farmers that we cannot kind of occupy that niche. But I think what it comes down to in, in large part is for the herbal product consumer to be um, more educated. That includes us. We always want to know what we're putting into our bodies. We are herbal product consumers and to make connections with smaller farms. And even with the bigger uh, herb resellers, um, we should consider asking questions of them as what are their practices and what are the, uh, why is there so much stem in that, in that herb that I'm getting? And like, what do you heat treat the herbs? A lot of the herbs, in fact, the majority of the herbs that are being sold by the larger herb resellers are being heat treated to control microbial, uh, you know, primarily yeast and mold concentrations. And what does that do to the plants overall? And um, is there any education about that? And are these companies really even kind of letting, letting us be aware of that? So I think we have to do the work as herbal product consumers to try to not only um, be, become more well-educated well, well as to the importance of quality, but also to ask these questions of the bigger producers and the herbal product manufacturers. And I think that's a good um, goal for yeah, the, uh, the subject of quality. specific things, practices that you are doing on the farm to ensure that higher quality? What we're doing on the farm is um, really trying to primarily it starts with feeding the soil um, because healthy soils make healthy plants and a lot of the plants we grow we're growing them and people are buying them because we want them to have high nutritional value, high contents of minerals and other um, you know other healing compounds what we're doing when we do that is when we harvest the plants, we're taking those minerals out of the ground. So we have to really focus on replenishing the minerals. So we're remineralizing and we're adding more organic matter to the soil in the form of compost and cover crops. And we're always trying to make sure that we end up with a net gain rather than net loss. And it's not always easy. It's challenging, especially on a small farm. We don't have the, the vast amount of acreage that allows us to leave a lot of our land in fallow. So we have to be really creative with our cover cropping, but Again, the quality comes down to us with the intention of growing the highest quality that we can, not only in the, the tangible sense of quality as looking and tasting and feeling and even 
some laboratory um, you know, analysis of the, of the material, but the energetic quality too, how we approach the work that we do and how we treat the land and our employees and the quality is a really pretty broad uh, scope. And one thing I'll add, I, I just wanna echo what Farmer Steve said, is like knowing the plants that, um, that you're working with. We started out um, with like 70 varieties that we tried to grow in our first year. And then as students of the plants, we were, we were studying what likes to grow here. And we're down to like 35 plants that love our home, love this bioregion. We're not trying to grow everything. We're trying to go deep and doing those plants really well. And, and, and also they'll tell us what they need. You can do that by a lot of observation, by testing like Jeff mentioned, but also um, just really being students of the land and students of the plants. And we found that that is really helpful. And just watching the efficacy as the plants go out into the people and hearing how it works. And then partnering with, you know, we don't have many manufacturers, but the ones that we have worked with and that we continue to work with, they want that quality. So we focus on those species. So I think that's been really great to go from 70 to 35. <laughs> <laughs> that's great. Um, Jordan, I'd love to hear you contribute, yeah, and add, especially because you're focusing and really focusing in on a few crops. Yeah, for um, us and me in particular, um, what I want is every time somebody walks into um, a Whole Foods or another, any other grocery store, large chain that carries um, organic ginger and turmeric, I want our product to be the best ginger and turmeric they, they've ever tasted. Um, we, so we focus on maintaining the varieties that we have. We produce all of our own seed and we grow two varieties of turmeric and Hawaiian yellow ginger. And for us, <clears throat> with our climate here on Kauai, um, we really intensify our cover cropping um, program to where we can grow three to four cover crops in a year. And we, we firmly believe that adding that much organic matter and nutrient and biodiversity to the soil, um, we produce really healthy and hardy rhizomes. And it'll be interesting in the years to come, we're starting to do some nutrient density testing to see if those practices and models really do help us um, obtain higher you know, nutrient levels in the crops. Um, another part of it for us, um, in terms of quality, um, our crops have to be grown in the tropics um, and we're the closest tropical region to the United States. Most of the other product um, in terms of ginger and turmeric come from, you know, ginger from Peru and South America and, or ginger in China. And um, what a few studies have shown is that those tend to be contaminated um, with lead. And then uh, um, a big deal for us is that in some of those other countries, you know, employees aren't being treated fairly and then their organic and food safety practices aren't um, up to snuff. And then we start to see that in the marketplace when products are being tested and added to supplements and juice. And so originally coming from a conventional farming background and then, you know, segueing into organic, it's been really important to me of knowing what we're putting in our bodies and not having, you know, anything harmful associated with the crops that we're, we're using as medicines um, uh, is a big deal. So we, we, that's how we focus on quality. Um, and yeah. 
That's great. I wanted to ask, can you talk a little bit about this, the testing around nutrient density and practices and, and how, how you're going about getting that information? Yeah, so uh, it's a, for us, it's more about setting a baseline. So, uh, you know, we start from where we're at and we know kind of where we want to go. And we'll, so main thing like in turmeric is we're testing um, curcumin levels. Um, and what we want to see is that by trying to mimic a more natural ecosystem, if we can over time increase those levels and make the medicinal properties of our crops um, more prevalent. And you've just, that's the, the beginning stages of that. Yeah, we've just started that this last year. Mm -hmm. That's great. Elise and Jeff, I'd love to hear you all. Mm, lots of good, good information. Um, oh wait, before I wanted to yeah. prompt you with one point around it, it's because you all are the one farm that really is hiring a, a work crew. I'd love if you could add in the challenges and the debt, how you think about that working with farm workers and quality in terms of labor practices and things like that. Sure. Um, it's kind of a hidden side, it's a hidden side of the botanical industry, you know, who, who's doing that work. Yeah. Um, well, one thing um, we were talking with some of the other farmers here earlier was just about like the growing season, right? Like not all of us grow year round. And so that is challenging to hire farm workers, especially in botanicals where you it's, it's not, um, it's something you really need to train people on and they get to need, need to know about all the different plants and how we harvest each one of them or different parts of them, you know, everywhere from seed to aerial tops to roots, flowers, all of that. And so we want to keep our staff on as long as possible. So we also have created value added products that we work on during the winter time. Um, and so that's one way we have helped sustain and keep our farm crew year round. I think that's been really important um, because a lot of agricultural workers are brought into farms. They work really hard for you know part of the season at the height of the season and then they're let go. And then how is that really sustainable model for somebody to invest in agriculture, right? So, um, and the other part I, we didn't get into, we may and may on another conversation because it might not be the same for this whole group, but it's just like, I feel like we've kind of worked on a fine balance of mechanizing because of the scale we're at um, we do have some mechanized equipment and then a lot of it is, is by hand. And so, you know, we've been real advocates of trying to mechanize where we can with a fine balance of also having a connection with the plants because we want to keep our farm workers and our crew with us for years to come and not break everybody's back um, because it is a really a lot of hard work. Um, you know, farming, hand picking, harvesting, we're moving you know, hundreds and thousands of pounds around each year. And so it's a lot of really hard work on a human body. So um, yeah, I think that has helped keep our staff um, together. Yeah, I think there's a lot of parts to the puzzle. It's mm -hmm. it's starts with soil care, like Jeff had mentioned, but it, then it's plant care, then it's harvest timing. So capturing that moment to get that you know, a matter of days can make a major difference between something being overripe and catching it at the right moment. And for us, we also had to really, there's a major learning curve in drying and a large investment in drying. And I think one of the big delineators between the mid-scale farms and the larger farms is the quality of how we can dry and put the attention to detail in that and being able to bring out a, a product like 
Jeff had mentioned that is not heat treated, has not been steam sterilized. A lot of these constituents are in the volatile oils, you know, when you look at the mints and things like that, um, so much of the value there is in the smell and the taste and the, you know, a a lot of the aromatics that are there. And those are easily lost, um, both in the drying cycle and in post-processing, whether it's through sterilization or milling or other parts to it. So a lot of for us is getting it at the peak moment, getting into the dryer as fast as possible. Our goal is usually 10 minutes from the field to the dryer. And then each crop having a specific profile of how we dry it, what the temperatures are, you know, how, you know, how much airflow we're looking at, you know, all of those types of things really play into how we can keep the, the highest uh, quality possible through the whole process. And then in the post-harvest handling of how we actually garble the herbs um, or mill them as needed, um, depending on the individual products so that we're getting the highest uh, you know, the most medicinal value out of that plant to the, to the end user in a format that they can use. And that's not always for everyone. That's what I wanted to mention too, is like what Jeff and Melanie were talking about is that, um, you know, we give our, at the scale we're at, we give our customers options. Like if they buy online, it's everything hand processed through a screen. And most of the customers we have, that's like what really makes us different, right? From, they see the they see pretty much the whole leaf in there and it's you know shocking and they're not getting all the stem or some stem that comes through the screen but you know it's still there but um and then we also grow to spec for people who are going to get it milled and you know or they need a tea cut or powder right so i think there's you know for us and it's like all of us say we're not big enough to fulfill everybody's needs but like how do we connect with the customers who are really wanting connect with the growers that are growing in values that they really believe in and want to support so we could go on and on but yeah yeah no no that's great and and, and hopefully through this you know everybody's getting a taste of the the, both the quality that of this connection and attention that you each bring and you can learn more by going to their websites and all of that see i'd love to have you continue with that and also maybe segue into talking a little bit more about the partnership that you mentioned with gaia because that is addressing a key challenge around access and um, and market. I mean, all you know, all those sort of social, economic pieces, cultural pieces of quality and farming. Sure. So for us, um, when it comes to quality, there are a few things we have to consider. Now. Growing up, I never received any type of um, farming education that separated the science and the spirit. It was all one, con- you know, one one concentric circle. Um, and as I grew older and went to school and went to college, that is where uh, it became more about the science. And working in the environmental space, in addition to having a farm. I often hear about the science and that's often a point of tension when we're working with um, indigenous communities or local communities because they don't separate again, the spirit from um, the growing. And so for us, we don't either. It's, It's always, our motto is always, we do the absolute best we can at that given moment. And so while we are very much learning, we're learning more about soil health and uh, the importance of cover crops 
and rotation. We're learning about the good little critters and the ones that may be cute, but you know, they're not necessarily and how we can utilize beneficial pests and things such as intercropping um, in order to be able to manage um, any type of weed or pest problem with as little chemical intervention as possible. We don't use chemicals at all. That's just a good rule of practice, we feel. Uh, we make sure we get our water quality man, um, measure to ensure that we're using good, good water. Uh, we good, use good soils, we add organic matter. And then we're also studying, learning about the plants again. Um, I, I need to understand terpenes and the, the hemp varieties that I grow. I need to understand their cannabinoid profile and how their terpenes uh, marry well with the terpenes in my other plants. For example, hemp and holy basil have almost the exact same terpene profile. They marry beautifully. And so I have to think about that, but I also, I'm making tea. And what I love about tea is tea has grace. It gives you grace. It allows for a lot of mistakes. Um, my customers are not drinking my tea and skipping a doctor's appointment. I hope they're not. My tea is not designed to replace or, re or heal necessarily, but to enhance. And um, I have to make sure it tastes good. So I have to think about things like that. There are some absolutely fabulous medicinal plants that taste like crap. I don't care how you dice them, okay? They only need to be consumed in a capsule form. Uh, I can't put that in tea. <laughs> so for me, quality is also about what is the customer experience uh, as well? Is that a quality, quality experience? So uh, regarding the partnership, the partnership was a co-creation, which was very important to me. I uh, was a bit tired of performative receipts. You know, no one should be surprised if you say they matter to you. It shouldn't become as a shock. You know, like you matter to me, really? I never knew that. If they say that, then you have done a pretty crappy job of showing them the significance that they have in your life. And I saw a lot of that happening uh, in 2019, 2020. And so I had received a small grant from Gaia Herbs and I like the way that they handled it. You know, it's five grand. It's not going to make or break a bank. It's not a five page application. You're not asking for these reports and all of these things that for those of us who have to validate our existence every single day, I really don't feel like going through all of that for $5,000 that you have a disproportionate amount to because the system was designed for you to have a disproportionate amount in order for me to get a little bit of it, I have to jump through hoops. No, thank you. And so they didn't require that. And I appreciated that and value that. And so I went back to them and said, well, how would, you know, what, what do you think about us creating something together equally as partners? It's not um, a chair, it's not charity, which a lot of times when there is that exchange from the side that has the disproportionate access to resource to the other side, they get billed as charity, get their names on front of magazines and they get a tax deduction. It's the best scam ever. Uh, it wasn't that, it was, we value your time, we honor your time and we value what you're bringing to the table as well as I value the fact that they have created a brand 
that is a mainstay in this space. Uh, they do demonstrate through various actions that they are trying to be a good company. And that's the type of company I like to be in. So with this particular partnership is two years. Uh, we went into it knowing that we don't know exactly how it's supposed to look. We have an idea, we have a direction that we're going in, but we're nimble, we're flexible. We're realizing that everyone is learning in the process and we may have to make some detours or some changes as things go along. But ultimately, the goal is, although I don't necessarily aspire to be um, su a supplier necessarily for larger brands, I would like to have that option. And more importantly, I would like for more farmers like me who are coming into this space, who are starting on very small pieces of land, maybe one, two acres, who may be coming into it without a breadth of knowledge. They didn't study um, horticulture or agriculture, any of that in, in school. If they you know, even went post-secondary, um, attended any post-secondary education, but they're interested in this lifestyle, I would like to be able to help them do that, build capacity in a way that doesn't break the bank. I tell farmers all the time, like when somebody sends me a message and they say, I want to be well, I want to be a farmer so bad. I was so inspired by you. I quit my job and bought some land. I'm like, why the hell did you do that? You better call your boss back and tell him you were just having a bad day and get your coins, okay? Because if you think you're going to go into farming and make some money, then there better be some some stripper poles in the barn or something because it's not going to happen. <laughs> it's just it's not. You've got to give your business time to grow. And just as you wouldn't go into a situation where a baby is born, parents don't ask the baby, okay, you've been breathing for 24 hours. It's time for you to start contributing, right? You have to give the baby time to grow. And so um, I think that is so important with the partnership with Gaia Herbs because they know that we're not slick and sophisticated. And what they can offer me as I'm building capacity, I don't have uh, access to a large legal team. You know, I don't have the Q&A um, capacity that they have. They can be a, a true resource with their brain trust. I want to know how to get better quality seeds and learn more about genetics when it comes to seeds. I want to know more about botany and the actual structure of plants. And so they're going to allow me to have access to their experts. And so it's a two year partnership. Um, and at the end of it, we hope to have some lessons learned that we're able to share with the industry as a whole and particularly with those who are really ready to do something meaningful as well as realize positive business outcomes because we are in a capitalistic society and let's not fool ourselves. Um, <laughs> it's very hard to get companies to do good without there being some monetary um, benefit at the end, but that can't be the, the primary reason for it. And what I, I find inspiring about that partnership is a lot of companies when I've been following through the supply chain, they talk about the importance of relationship, but it can be really hard to honor that as you're saying in this market economy where the pressure's on price and yield. So I wonder uh, of the others, Jordan or Lisa and Jeff, or who wants to chime in and sort of talk about these cha the challenge of 
the tension between focus on this quality, which it requires huge investments of time and then and resources and competing on a in a industry that demands pressure on price and yield. Um, I'll speak to that. We we run into that a lot. Everybody customers tend to like the cachet of getting product from Hawaii and having, you know, or especially organic product from the island of Kauai. Um, so when contract season rolls around, um, we make, yeah, we get good promises and it looks like things are going to work out well for us here on the farm. Um, but then cheaper products will come in from say South America that can be, you know, two to $3 a pound less than us. Um, and some customers will buy portions from us to make it, you know, to show good face to their customers that they are buying domestic um, organic product while the, the bulk of their volume might be coming from another source. And that's, that's rarely spoken to. Jeff, yeah. I think that's a, a very valid point. I mean, we all the time, people want to buy domestic, they want to buy local. Um, and then at the end of the day, the pricing comes down to, well, we can get that cheaper in Egypt or India or China. Um, and we just, we can't afford, we just, the, the, our, our uh, labor costs are too high here. We can't pick chamomile for the same that you can get it in out of Egypt. There's just, there's just no way. Um, and I think where we delineate is in quality, but Again, I think that's a challenge as well. It's like a lot of uh, companies want uh, standardization of constituent content. They want every bottle of echinacea tincture to be exactly the same. And as a farmer, we get paid by the pound at the end of the day. And if we don't show up at the pounds, regardless of our relationship with our individual buyers, if we don't show up at the pounds, we don't get paid. Um, and there's a lot of factors when it comes to growing herbs and getting constituent contents that are out of our control, whether it's smoke from wildfires or drought or a number of factors that, you know, we don't even sometimes know what, what comes into play. Um, things can change as far as uh, constituent contents are concerned. Um, you know, it, it's, a, it's a real challenge that we have to deal with on a day-to-day -day basis. And, uh, you know, yields can be down. The smoke comes in, uh, our daylight decreases. There's all sorts of things that we, we really don't have control over. As a farm, we are subject to uh, these forces of nature and there's a lot of risk in, in it already. And uh, it's definitely part of our, our big challenge in dealing with in getting things out there. Yeah, I guess I just wanted to mention too, like to chime in with Jordan said about you know, people buying some from the farm and then kind of so that they have a good face and then they're buying the majority of someplace else a lot cheaper. It's just also, um, I think, I don't think that it's intentionally happens, but just to be aware of it as a buyer and a manufacturer, especially when you are kind of promoting like partnership farms or things like that, that like, like when you call something your farm or you take ownership to that, um, that means that you have the same skin in the game as the farmer. So, you know, if we have a crop failure and we don't give you the Tulsi that you ordered, like we don't get paid. If it was your farm or like, you know, our farm together, you would be paying part of the production costs and everything it took, or for like the three years it took to grow your echinacea, that would be your farm and our farm together. But when it's, you know, you partner with somebody, just be careful of how you market that as a company. Like, I think, 
you know, it's important to, it's an just important thing and to talk to the customer, talk to your farmers also about it before you do that. Like we love to be highlighted and acknowledged for our hard work, but we also don't want you taking credit for that hard work, so. I just wanted to add, if I may, just to uh, piggyback on what Elise just spoke of, is I feel like um, Jeff and I have had similar experiences to what was named by the other farmers. And one of our, um, like one of the pillars in our hearts, like that we say that we want to see happen is like a grower in every county. We want to see bioregional small farms everywhere um, and to bring that in. And, um, you know, when Jeff and I started farming, we were waiting tables and working in schools as we were farming and like, how do you help other farmers coming up to be able to get in? And I think that our big man, like our big distributors of herbs, our big companies, they have a role in this. If they truly care about small and um, restorative farms, they need to put their investments there by offering to support and pay for testing, offering to do pay for like all of the fees and the certifications, those add up for, for new farmers, for everybody to get into multi-year contracts, to help farmers come with product makers to their third-party manufacturers so that they don't get dropped at the door um, when those third-party manufacturers have their own supply chain that's crap and not as good as ours, you know? And so I feel like I'd really love to see some of that happening more. And I'm so heartened by what Farmer C, you were speaking of with Gaia, like um, those are the kinds of things that need to happen and, and not just say, well, you can do 700 pounds if you can do it for four bucks, we'll take it, you know, four bucks a pound. Like that doesn't, that doesn't help any small farmer ever. So that's my soapbox I will get off. <laughs> there's, a, there's a lot of value in telling the story of the farm, you know, consumers, everyone wants a connection and, that, and that's a great thing. It has a lot of value for the, for the buyers and for the producers as well. Uh, what we've run into through the years is some of the companies that were sort of like trying to use us in their narrative didn't really like walk their talk so much. And we kind of like really kind of like try to hold them accountable for their actions. So um, we really like are excited when companies come in who want to buy from us and they want to kind of like use us in their marketing or tell the story of the farm. But I think it's really important to us and to the herbal product consumer to really ask the big questions like, well, what are you really doing? How supportive are you really to those farmers? And to support new farmers coming up, it's hard to get in. It's hard to find land. It's like, how do we make, you know, it's, it's everybody's birthright to have access to land and it's not yet. And so like, how do these big companies help that? As well as like, how do we network as farmers that have been in the game and like help each other and like do those consultations. So this is such an important conversation. Thank you, Anne, for having us. And I was just gonna chime in and say, um, I think a key piece here that we, definitely have to give some attention to is the importance of entrepreneurialism in farming because traditionally farmers have been wholesale suppliers that is the role that they fit in the market and that is always going to put the farmer at a disadvantage unless it is a very large um, corporate growing entity and I think it's very important for those that are coming into farming now to really understand where they fit into the market. For us, we realized quickly that we had to vertically scale, that we had to create our own market demand for our products and focus on building our wellness brand that has a farm, as opposed to being just, you know, just a farm. 
And that has resulted in our being able to um, really circumvent some of the some of the challenges that a lot of farmers have with you know crop failure we had a crop failure so i went to another farmer who didn't have a crop failure and i bought his stuff and was still able to ensure that we met um met the need for our customers so it's really important for farmers to spend that time uh, marketing social media right now is critical um, to farmers you have people who don't even farm anymore some of the most popular farming youtubers don't even farm anymore <laughs> they do youtube videos all the time and you know have learned ha how to diversify their revenue streams um, by really building upon the the entrepreneurial outlets that are available as well So did you want to go ahead, Elise? Yeah, I, I think both Jeff and I wanted to add in that um, for, you know, people that are manufacturers or different companies buying herbs, we just want to mention, and maybe our farm is just like not doing well on this part of things. Other people can chime in, but our profit margin when we sell our herbs is like single digit. So we don't have a lot of room to play. Like, I feel like as manufacturers and like you know, the end product makers, you can play with the numbers and you can charge a little bit more or maybe make a little bit less profit than doubling everything. Like as a farm, we really like, it's pretty average to get 4% profit. Like that's like- After working our tail After off. working really, really I, I think, you know, like C was mentioning, well, A, Melanie started, there's huge barriers to entry to becoming a farmer in general, land costs and all these costs, but herb farming, especially, there's, there's a huge number of barriers to entry and just lack of equipment, lack of knowledge, lack of, you know, just the number, the sheer Data. amount of, of information and money that you need to get started. The last session was all these corporate farms backed with huge amounts of money to make these things happen. Um, which is amazing. Which is great. And we need more of that. But we also need a lot more small farmers out there. And I agree that we need bioregional produced herbs. What's growing in your own region is what's going to be the best for you. And, um, you know, we're really lacking in the, the support there from you know, we're, we're constantly up against this dollar number to try to be competitive with these larger farms just to get in the door in most of these companies. And that's a real challenge to our long-term sustainability and ability to keep doing this. Mm -hmm. And um, it's something we're constantly battling as farmers. And, you know, we all see the rock star farmers who, like C mentioned, they're doing, they've got their products, they're killing it on Instagram, they're Insta famous and all these things. But to do all of these things well is very, very challenging. And there's so many hats we wear as farmers from agronomists to uh, human resources to, you know. Um, Tech department. Yeah, I mean, there's just so many customer service, sales, all these hats we have to wear to have to add another value added product on top of it is very challenging. And, it, and most, I'd say most people who are interested in farming cannot do it. And there's, they don't have the resources to go in and, and start and get the, the the skill, hire the skill set they need to do all these things. Um, so it's really challenging. <laughs> and amazing. <laughs> to, to, to sort of segue from that into, and you've mentioned some of these things in your comments about the challenges, but are there some specific things like three things that buyers of products or, or companies and, you know, contract manufacturers, ingredient suppliers can do to, to support the work you're doing. And, and Jordan, I'm actually curious from you because you're having some partnerships also with 
brands, right, to do the research that in a way can help demonstrate the value of the way you're farming. Is that, I don't know, so are there specific examples that people in the audience can take away, like, oh, this is a way I can help support more bioregional, more domestically grown herbs. And one question that's been in, in different ways in the Q&A is around regulations, because I think that is a key thing that can be a big barrier for new farmers. So that's a lot in there, but Jordan, I wondered if you could just take a stab at some of that first. Uh, the best example I have of that is our partnership um, with Mega Food. Um, they buy both ginger and turmeric from us and they're um, sponsoring the, the five-year carbon sequestration um, trial. Um, but inside Mega Food, one thing they've done that's really great is they've, they've created a, essentially a, a farmer incentive program um, so they, they've come up with a program that um, is important to them and that they think benefits their company and the environment. Um, and then they'll reward farmers um, X amount of dollars per annum um, based on implementing different procedures uh, or practices on their farm. And, and that's really great because it gives farmers a little bit of extra capital to, to venture out into doing something they might not have done before because of the expense behind it. Um, and most of these companies are, you know, moving forward or needing to show that they are doing something beneficial to the environment and they are taking care of their growers, customers and consumers like to see that. Um, so that's something that's really great. Um, another customer we have, um, they came to us this year after hearing about the mega fruit trial um, and they, they want to do something regenerative or sustainable. So we're looking at starting a, um, a food forest type of um, model that we, we'd be able to grow our um, crops in alongside of a, a plethora of other different species and varieties. And, you know, they're willing to put money into that. So um that's a big deal because it allows us to diversify and do something we haven't really done before um so seeing more of that would would really help in the sector that's great does anybody else want to add time in other things specific ways that you feel like especially companies buyers could help really put their money where they're you know put their follow up and say, do, do what they actually say they're doing. Yeah, Jeff, you're on mute. The kind of the advent of Dishay and the kind of like the advent of the third party manufacturers, the contract manufacturers has been a game changer for us because a lot of the small to mid scale herbal product manufacturers that we're uh, working with had great relationships with, <clears throat> excuse me, were forced because they couldn't afford to be compliant for the FDA anymore, they were forced to kind of go work with these contract manufacturers. And unfortunately, the contract manufacturers have a lot of power and stay over how they kind of manufacture these companies' products. And they are doing most of the sourcing. Most of the contract manufacturers that we know of are doing most of the sourcing. And they're really resistant to these smaller to mid-scale herbal product manufacturers saying, well, that, that's great. You can do this manufacturing for us, but we really want to make sure that you're using the same sources for herbs that we were using because it changes the, the profile of everything, the taste, the quality, and the contract manufacturers have so much power. I think that's one of the really 
huge hurdles um, as far as us working with these manufacturers in, in now and in the future. And I think it's up to the product manufacturers and the consumers to push, push back. I'm gonna use that word again, or that phrase again, to really say to these contract manufacturers, like, I don't wanna use the stuff you're sourcing, which is the, the mass market herbs, that's really low quality, mass produced. I'd rather support these smaller farms because in general, um, when you look at the, you know, an herbal product, say a tincture, and you and you view this in terms of a slice of pie of the costs that go into that that bottle of tincture, the raw material of the herbs is a very very small slice of that pie. The labeling and the marketing and everything is like the majority of the costs and the packaging. Um, so, I think it's it's challenging for us and especially for um, newcomers in this industry to really break into working with these manufacturers. And I think again, we have to really push. We all have to push back and uh, put the focus in center quality. Because we even had a, a dear friend who had an amazing business and she tried to bring all her farmers with her. She fought like a wildcat with all those product ma uh, manufacturers to say, these are my farmers, we grew up together and they wouldn't use us and our farms in Vermont, a bunch of us. So like that's really gotta change. Like there should be that, um, that ability for people who are making products and you know outsourcing the know the bottling of it and the creation of it to be able to bring their farmers with them i also think that these some of the um, buyers and some of the herb distributing you know mega businesses need to really look at long-term contracts with small growers mm -hmm. um, and to look at higher price point like talk with the farmer about what is the wiggle room what is the cost of production to get it at that stage rather than say well here's our five dollar pound Price, maybe I can give you 50 cents more. Can you hit it? <laughs> you know, rather have a dialogue about like, well, what would it cost for your farms or farmers or cooperative of farms to do this in a smaller way or in a smaller scale? And then I also think technical assistance and grants for equipment would be essential. That's low hanging fruit. How do you get a dryer? How do you get um, like someone to come in and say, do this, this, and this, and we'll give you a grant for that so that you can get this and here, and then then we can have that partnership. Because if you don't have the dryers and you don't have the TA, then it's really hard to move forward. So those seem like easy next steps in my mind for some of that. Um, I wanted to add one, just to go back to Jordan's point of, because one thing I do think that Megafood and anyone can go look on their website, their farmer code of contact, the healthy farm standard, because what something like that does is their brand, so they're working with contract manufacturers and stuff, but they have a brand, as a brand has made, have made that commitment to the farmers that then can be audited, checked against, measured against, because I feel like the system to change has to work for all of the stakeholders involved. And it's, it's figuring out how to get everyone in the room to talk about, because because I think U.S. company, there's a pressure on price because, you know, com herbs coming from Egypt or China, you can get for much less price, and then consumers don't have that awareness of quality distinction. Yeah, Elise, and then pharmacy. I think you. Yeah, I'm. I yeah, some of the same things, but a little bit different. Just like I think all of us that are feeling passionate about having that relationship and working with farms directly to be involved in policy making like we can't just like ignore what's happening because we want to be focused on our farm or we want to be making herbal products and we don't you know so policy getting keeping involved in policy i think is key so that we don't end up in situations like um, mel was talking about um as a buyer like if you can take on the testing on times that would be amazing because especially on diverse farms where 
you're not harvesting maybe more than 100 or 200 pounds of an herb and then to pay $150 for testing, um, it just tacks on to the price of the herb, right? And you're already trying to get a low price and like testing is different every single time. So you might as well test it yourself. Um, I think the contracts are super important um, and also multi-year contracts. Like we're starting to get to the point now where there's certain herbs we know like the first year growing plantain, the yield is so low. Like we're gonna have to plant double just to get what that person needs for the first year. And then if they go the second year and then go with somebody else for whatever reason, not because it was, the plant wasn't amazing, but just because a new buyer came in or whatever. Um, so we're learning to have multi-year uh, contracts with certain herbs so that we can, the following year, we might lose money that first year on that plant, you know, anticipating that the next year we'd be growing for them and then things shift and change. So just like as buyers, I just really um, urge you to um, get connected with the farms, come visit farms that you're buying for, get to know like really what does it take? There's some amazing buyers out there that have such good relationships relationships with us and other farmers and have agricultural backgrounds and they know a lot. And then there's other buyers who really don't understand. And it's not that they're meaning to make mistakes, but I don't think they understand the impact that it might have in a farm when you change one contract from year to year. So yeah, just encouraging that long-term relationship. Um, and then deposits on contracts would be super helpful um, because, you know, sometimes we're growing for a year or two for you and then you're asking for a 90 day <laughs> um, net, you know, net and we're like, you're not, we're not your bank. We've been your bank for two years while we're growing this and we paid all the upfront costs. So we really would like to get a payment on time. Um, so yeah, just that. Um, I think I had that contracted deposits, uh, multi-year contracts testing. Yeah. So, oh, and cover crop. I was like, you know, people want to, they want farms to be doing all these regenerative practices and doing the right thing, which we're all want to do in our hearts and we're doing it anyways, but it is a lot of costs, like getting the organic certs and all of those things, you know, and I'm sure in other parts of the state, we have a reimbursement program for organic certification. So it's a partial reimbursement, but also keeping that for cover crops and some of the um, you know, some of the things that we do as farms that would be nice to get reimbursed for. We have all these subsidies for GMO crops, but we don't have it for organic farming the same way. So, yeah. Interesting. These are all really good points for consumers too, to then ask the brand, how are you treating your farmers? You know, do you have long-term contracts? Do you deposits on the contract? Pharmacy, did you want to add? To that? Yeah. Um, well, one, I wanted to just, uh, add on to Melanie's comment about the grants. I do think there is definitely room for improved grant um, making. And I also feel that the process needs to be reasonable. Um, I'm currently working on a federal grant that will be at least 50 pages by the time that I'm done. And most farmers, producers don't have that capacity to do that. Um, and then the grants themselves are just, they don't make sense. and you know, some of the questions are like, what? I, never, I haven't, you know, it's just, so make it more accessible. I will say, you know, while having more informed and educated consumers, um, educated in the sense as far as the project uh, products um, that they're contemplating purchasing, but the reality is that's a lot for us to expect a consumer to do. They're not gonna go ask about the farmers um, or any of that. There's too many competing issues in the world. The company may treat their farmers like crap, but they save three-legged kittens. You know, you've got a lot of things that are competing for interest. We are a very fickle society. Our 
attention span is very short. So I feel that a lot of the responsibility for um, right-sizing things are gonna fall on the producers. If, you know, if I sold my products for 20, well, my teas go for 30 bucks a bag and I can't keep teas on my shelf. But I make sure that when they get that tea, that is something that's worth 30 bucks, right? They actually feel like they're getting it for a bargain because not only is it good quality, but they get the story and everything that comes with it. I feel that producers have to take more control in the situation. Um, it would be great if there was a cohesive, unified voice with these uh, buyers as far as those who are purchasing bulk uh, supplies and bulk plant material so that they know that, okay, so I couldn't get it for you know, 12 bucks a pound from this farmer, but the farmer right next to him, you know, he'll sell it for 12 bucks a pound. Like there has to be more um, unified, the more of a unified voice. Um, and then we also have to ensure that we're doing our part to provide the consumers with the education. They don't have to ask how this particular entity is treating the farmer because we're right here and we're telling you, they treat us like crap, Well, they treat us fantastic, we're happy. And so making sure that we provide them with that, that education that we would like for them to have because I just don't see that people having time to do that. Um, maybe a few, but is it a sustainable number? Um, I, don't, I don't think so. Okay, Jeff, you can say one thing and then we're gonna do a last Yeah, sorry, one. just real quick, she just made me think, you know, a lot of the companies that are starting to become more aware and are asking questions, it actually results in us putting like five to 10 page uh, answers and questions together to even get us to continue with a, a company that we've been working with for, you know, five, six years. Now they want us to do all this extra paperwork to prove what we're doing rather than them coming out or whatever. And it just ends up being more work on the farmer to to prove our practices. And it's like another certification um, with each and every buyer, um, which is challenging in its own way. Yeah, that's a really good point too, as I hear all these companies coming up with their self-assessment, you know, their tools going down the supply chain. So we're coming to the end. We could obviously keep talking for a long, long time, but I wanted to give you each a chance to get back out from the details of the challenges and, and really talk about what to you in your heart, why this is so important? What keeps you working so hard to make your vision, keep it alive? Whomever wants to start first. We can start off. You wanna go there? Yeah, I mean, I just wanna say that um, it's a complete honor to farm and work with people and medicinal herbs. And I, I just feel like, especially with this last crazy year, no, you know, gave us even more reassurance on what we're doing is the right thing. And we're just so honored to anybody reaching out and trying to connect with farms. I know we're just all trying to do the best we can. And every entity and part that's working in this, in this field has their own challenges. So we just appreciate everyone who cares enough to reach out to the farm. So thank you for the opportunity to grow and grow with you. So, yeah. And I think, you know, we're just proud of getting the best quality uh, herbs and uh, stuff out there so you can make the best quality products and we get the best medicine and plant juju to everyone that needs it. And uh, I think that's really what we as farmers are trying to do and just 
you know, appreciate all the support and everybody just attending this um, and being a participant. Yeah. Um, so thanks for having us. Thank you other farmers. We could talk for days, except for we all have to get out in the field and work. <laughs> Who next? I'll jump in. Um, for me, you know, it boils down to quality of life. Even with all of the challenges, with all of the obstacles, I am still happier outside working with my plants, feeling the sun on my skin, um, experiencing nature with every sense than I am sitting behind a desk all day and working to achieve someone else's dream. So it's about quality of life. It is about me being able to focus on all of the things that matter to me, legacy, um, environment, equity, education, all of those pieces. And I'm able to do it while doing something that I love and being compensated for it. So yeah, for me, it is absolutely about, about that. Great, thank you so much. Yeah, um, just coming from a farming background and being able to continue that on and continue that legacy while um, growing crops that uh, really matter to the populace and consumers out there and getting the feedback from that, that that's the best, you know, ginger or turmeric we've ever tasted. Or, you know, if somebody's having some kind of, you know, simple medical ailment and then hearing that, you know, ginger helped their, their stomach condition or something like that. And knowing that, you know, we grew that crop for a year and that went out and it's helping somebody and it's making their quality of life better. And, you know, especially with where we're at um, with climate, being able to do the right thing, make a living and help the environment at the same time, all of that in a bundle is, it's really rewarding at the end of the day. And everybody knows farming is not your 40 hour a week job, it's 80. Um, probably 365 days a year and it, but all of it is worth it at the end of the day. And yeah, I'd like to thank all the other farmers. It's been great getting to know you all. Thank you. Yes, I'll uh, acknowledge and echo what both Farmer C and Jordan said about quality of life and the kind of feedback loop from the consumer, from our buyers. That's really what keeps me going is, um, you know, oftentimes, oh, oftentimes people who are uh, new buyers ask us why our prices are a little higher and we have to kind of explain, well, we're different, you know, it's hand garbled and we're a smaller farm and we're less automated and all those reasons. Um, when, they, when they get the herbs, if we send them samples or they buy the herbs, hearing the feedbacks, whether it's they call us or email or we meet them in person at a conference or another place, just seeing the wow factor and the difference of the stuff that they're kind of used to on the kind of modified herbs market really keeps us going. And uh, it all comes down to, again, pharmacy and Jordan, like quality of life, knowing that what we're doing is really making a, a huge difference and helping people get better and helping the environment around us. And we're just trying to do it in a sustainable manner and so far it's working out well and I also want to say that it was great to, to uh, do this with all of you and I look forward to meeting you all in person someday I hope that's soon 
Can't wait to go to Hawaii and see you, Jordan. And that alarm was for and our daughter. come here anytime too. And that alarm was for our daughter, you know, reminding me to do something with her later. Um, and that was the real reason, one of the reasons I continue to like want to do this work is for the next generations coming up and for the legacy. And I think we all need to learn how to be better humans and the plants teach us that. And I think that being in their communities all day long with dirty fingernails and, you know, that's where I want to be every day. So it was great meeting y'all. So thankful. Thank you all. I'm gonna let that end on Mel's notes of being in the out with the plants all day that they help us be better humans. And thank everyone for joining. And again, you'll we'll share the full recording of this. And at the Sustainable Herbs Program, we're really thinking about how to carry on the themes that have been raised here so that it leads to action, so that it's not just talked about here. But thank you all so much for your time. It's been so great to hear about you all and what you're doing. Thank you. Everybody. Bye. Thank you. Thank you.